Hello and welcome to the very 115th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast about, you know it, board games. Today on the podcast, you've got me, Tom Brewster, and with me, you've also got a man that is called, what's your name? Wait, uh, My name's Quinton Smith. Quint, uh, how do you spell I know, uh, it's a disaster. Q-U-I, not Q-U-E, which is what everyone thinks. I think it was about four years into our relationship where my wife mentioned offhandedly, like, I don't like your name. It's something I got used to, though, because I love you. (laughs) That is brutal. (laughs) I mean, my name is Quentin. And also, I have to introduce myself as Quinns to people because now my nickname has become, like, my actual name for lots of people. It's a complete disaster. If you're not aware of board games... Believe it or not, they're pretty good these days, and you're going to hear about some really good ones on this podcast. We're going to be talking about The Deadlies, a silly little party game, which Tom says is both silly and a party and good, and Mm -hmm. not as ominous as a theme about the seven deadly sins would imply. We're going to talk about. It it could be. Wait, what could be awful? A party game about the seven deadly sins. That does sound super bad. That sounds really (laughs) bad. Uh, We're going to be talking about Super Skill Pinball Forcade, a game that brings all the fun of pinball tables to your table, to your actual table. That's, that's, oh my God, I'm botching this. We're going to be talking about (laughs) Fields of Arle, a game about uh, managing peat bogs in northern Germany. We're going to be talking about Undaunted North Africa, a game about not being daunted in North Africa. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the video reviews we've put online in the last couple of weeks, which are Ken and the 4,000-year-old board game of Go. Tom, I believe you were recently the recipient of a big box of games. Actually, no, I take it back. You almost weren't the recipient of a box of games that I sent to your house, is that right? It, that was close to being a total disaster. That was close to going fully <laughs> awry. But luckily, I was. It, you kept calling it Tom Cruise-style Mission Impossible, intercepted it along the way. But in reality, yeah. I just made one of my friends pick it up instead and then got it from him. Um, but in that box, there were like a load of cool games. And instead of being excited by the ones on the top, I delved right to the bottom and took out the smallest, dinkiest card game I could find, which was The Deadlies. The Deadlies. So this is by Smirk and Dagger, a, mm-hmm. game, a little card game designed by Paul Saxberg. I just wanted to say, I, I do that sometimes. When Shut Up and Sit Down receives a big box of games, I'm like, wow! But then I find myself drawn to something small and manageable. Yeah, it's definitely, it felt like it was at the... I got the box of games to my table after sort of a long day and I was like, let's sit this down and it has one page of rules. And I was like, this sounds perfect. This sounds way better than, than trying to crunch my way through. I don't know, something like Undaunted, which isn't that, never mind. But anyway, <laughs> The Deadlies <laughs> is, I think, kind of great. I didn't expect anything from it. Sort of looking at it, it looks like a sort of mad sort of little filler game that wouldn't be particularly interesting but i thought it was really great it's very silly but it's fun shall i shall i tell you what the deadlies is quince i would love to hear about the deadlies (laughs) and why it's called the deadlies it's called the deadlies because of the theming which is all about those deadly sins you know them you love them there's seven of them and i would like to go on the record as saying i don't love I was trying to think of a funny one. I can only remember Sloth, but I do quite like Sloth. Sloth I might be a sinner. Sloth is probably my favourite of the Deadly Sins and probably the least bad, maybe. It's definitely less bad than, like, Wrath, right? Let's not get into a discussion of (laughs) Judeo-Christian sort of Old (laughs) Testament policies. How do you play the Deadlies? Uh, In the Deadlies, the objective is to get rid of all of your cards forever. You start with a hand of six, and then when you get rid of that hand of six, you then twist this little uh, counter round to draw up a hand of four. And then when you get rid of your hand of four, you then twist it to two and you draw two. And then you keep doing that until you get to zero. And once you've got zero and you you don't have any more cards ever, that is the end of the game. And you are the winner. The way that you do that is on your turn, you can play... Uh, sets of cards from your hand and those sets can be a run so like one two three four all the cards have numbers from one to seven on them and they all have different Mm -hmm. suits and each suit is a a deadly's sin um okay so you could play a run of one two three four five and they could all be different suits or you could play two of the same suit so two sloths two gluttons whatever uh or you could play all of the same number so a one of pride a one of wrath and a one of sloth 
um, mm -hmm. and whatever card is on the top of that stack, so those cards are just binned. You just got rid of them. Whoopee. But the top card of each pile that you play is going to have some kind of effect. And those effects normally involve you drawing cards. <laughs> so you're discarding three and then running the risk of then drawing more immediately as soon as you've played them. Um, <laughs> okay. So what makes the Deadly special is that each of those cards, uh, each top card effect will have its own kind of mini game associated with it. So maybe the most simple one is Sloth. When you play a Sloth card, normally you bin them all, but when you play a Sloth card at the top of your stack, it goes in front of you and it does nothing at the time. But if someone else then plays a Sloth card, everyone with a Sloth card in front of them then has to draw a card. So as it goes around the table, <laughs> the the consequence of Sloth is that more and more people are putting it down. It's like the late, the lazy option, I guess, and it piles up. That's the simplest one. Um, and I'll save going through all seven of them and just focus on the most interesting ones. So all of these are, are kind of quite funny because they get the table all gathered around this one little mini game that's happening in that moment. So Raph or Roth is where you play it and if it's the top of your stack, you make someone else draw two cards. Once they've drawn two cards, they look at their hand and if they play a Roth, then you have to draw two cards. <laughs> but then if you play a Roth, they have to draw two cards and so on and so forth until none of you has any Roth cards left which is just a wonderful thing where you'll get in this little tiny mini game where people are just playing cards over and over like, no, you take this, no, you take this. And it just builds up and up and up. Um, and the best one, the one that made our table sing was greed. Um, greed is the most involved mini game where you take the deck of cards into your hand and you deal them out to people around the table. You have to deal a minimum of two and any cards that you deal will then be given to the person that you deal them to. And you can choose who you deal them to around the table. So you can stop at two, but you can keep dealing. And if you get a pair, you take them all back into your hand, into your hand. Oh, yes! Which is lovely. But then even the twist on that is if you manage to deal just five cards out to everyone, you get rid of your whole hand straight away. So it literally turns into this tiny little <laughs> push your luck mini game where... The, the goal is sufficiently low that you always think you can do it, but you never do. Like, every time you'll just be unlucky enough to flip over a pair of Wraths or Sloths or something and be like, no! As you have to suck all the cards oh, back wow. into your hand. Um, this sounds... This sounds... This sounds great. It is. It's, it's not going to blow anyone's mind. It's not going to be the next massive, huge kind of card game, and it's not going to be something that you're always going to come back to forever and ever. It, it's kind of silly and light and breezy but i think that it's got that sort of like it's got the energy of a game like cockroach poker kind of built into it of the sort of the take that and the just being extra spiteful and horrible to everyone around the table and that kind of shared catharsis when someone that's doing really well just gets dunked on by everyone all at once <laughs> i'm in awe a little bit because take that card games if i had to name a genre within tabletop that i don't like it would be take that card games like you know games like flux or munchkin games right. that are sort of wild and out of control with people playing cards that have effects but this sounds like it bottles the essence of that which is someone playing a card and then everyone around the table sort of being unified and laughing at the results of that card mm. which are punishing to someone but like just the fact because there's only seven suits right so there's only seven of these effects presumably yes yeah yeah, but then that's perfect because rather than someone playing a card and me being like, oh, I didn't know that was in the game, I guess I'll suffer that penalty. Everyone knows the distribution of wacky stuff. It's like how we always talk about how it's fine there's a card in Cosmic Encounter that zaps all other cards and stops them from happening because everyone knows there's, I think, one or maybe two of those in the mm, deck. Sure. So I guess it's the knowledge of how many of each wacky effect there is in the deck which enables me to feel like i'm playing a game a little bit i mean i wouldn't say that it's something where i was at all or anyone was at all thinking of like counting cards in in or like or thinking about how the likelihood of something being played it's quite a chunky deck of cards um okay. but the obviously yeah you, there's definitely something for the fact that they're all quite uniform in their um in what you're playing them for there's no kind of like weird strange effects um, that you're yeah. going to come out of nowhere and be like, oh, well, that's kind of mean. Everyone, you've all got the same kind of starting point almost. You've all got the same suite of abilities available to you probably at, at any given time. I suppose I'm also being won over by the fact that if there's only seven abilities, that means after you've seen all seven abilities, you can stop reading. You know, <laughs> yes. it's not the case of drawing a card or playing a card and then everyone says, well, what does that do? It's like, well, let me take the player who has one of the no it's like if there's seven effects you can quickly internalize the seven effects just like love letter yes you know yeah. um there's also a whole system that i haven't even talked about that just runs alongside the game that i think 
elevates it just a little bit more as well, which is the halo, um, which sits in the middle of the table. And there's one card in the deck called Purity, and that means <laughs> that you play Purity and you get a halo, and it goes into your hand. And you can't play that straight away because you've already played your cards for the turn. But the halo, you play it and you just discard your whole hand. The thing is, what I haven't mentioned is Envy uh, is one. So there's <laughs> e- <laughs> Envy and Gluttony are both cards that let you take cards from someone else's hand. So as soon as the Halo comes into play, the game pivots and it's like, right, we've got to wrestle that out of that person's hand, regardless of how well they're doing. Um, so like, there's a really nice thing where Gluttony is a card that lets you pick one card from someone else's hand then take another turn and there have been so many moments where someone has fanned you know they've taken the halo they've got a nine card hand and the halo somewhere in there someone plays gluttony <laughs> looks at their hand and picks one card out and then goes oh yes <laughs> and then slams it down on the table because they managed to get the exact one and it is it's you know it is in that same kind of like family of just family kind of silly take that games but it's just so much it's just a little cut above most of what is in that genre you're right in thinking that my heart sinks when someone brings up something like flux or even worse like exploding kittens or something like that Mm. kind of makes me want to die inside a bit but this is it's smarter and it's more it's way more engaging and i like it a lot it's pretty good. That sounds really great. I'm really won over. You've got to, again, I feel like I say this every podcast, but when conventions are allowed again, <laughs> you got to, that sounds like a convention game. Yes, absolutely. I'll tell you about another little box that I have been indulging myself in recently, and that is Super Skill Pinball 4K, which is a wonderful mm. title uh, by Jeff Engelstein and published by WizKids. And you've played a bit of this, right? Yes. So uh, yeah, that was a bit easy. Yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, in my, uh, I did a couple of videos on the best one-player print-and-play games near the start of um, uh, lockdown in the UK, and one of them was a free one-page demo of Jeff Engelstein's Super Skill Pinball. What, what we've got here, this is a a roll and write game that I enjoyed quite a lot. So I'm pretty thrilled to hear before the podcast that you're saying you you had a good time with it as well. How how I, I you've played it more recently? Why don't you describe Super Super? Oh God, goodness gracious! Super Skill Pinball 4K. <laughs> it's it really does roll off the tongue, huh? Um, Should we stress that the that 4K is spelled? Oh my God! I've only I'm only just now processing how insane this title is. <laughs> so 4K is spelled with a number four, no space, C A D E. Because there's four pinball tables in this box, right? Yeah, but 4K doesn't really make sense as a word. It's close no. to arcade, but maybe it should be like four and then an R and then Cade. Take notes, I think Jeff, it should be if you're listening. It should be super skill pinball arcade, but the A in pinball is a four. There you go. That would have been absolutely perfect. They missed a trick, whiz kids. They did. Um, <laughs> so Super Skill Pinball 4K is a roll and write game. If you're not familiar with roll and write games, uh, they're games where typically, I mean, there's so many variants, but uh, a shared pool of dice are going to be rolled and everyone uses those results to fill in or write uh, on a sheet <laughs> in front of them within the confines of the game. Um, so everyone shares the results of the dice each time they're rolled, but what you choose to do with them uh, means that people are going to go off on different pathways from the get-go. And in Super Skill Pinball 4K, you're playing pinball. Uh, you've got two sheets in front of you. You've got one which is the back glass of the pinball table and one that is the table itself. Uh, the former of those is for keeping score and the latter is for playing the game. Um, and on the table in front of you, you've got loads of features that those dice rolls are going to interact with. Um, so on the beginner board, which I believe you've played the creepy carnival one, I don't think it's meant to be creepy, (laughs) it just is creepy. Yeah, it's just clowns. It's just classic Uncanny Valley carnival pinball. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got like bumpers and flippers and all that kind of stuff, and each space on those bumpers and flippers needs to be filled with a specific roll. So it's like, you know, roll two to hit a bumper or roll three to do that um and the way that it works is you have this tiny little silver pinball that starts at the top and it trickles down and you fill in results from the top to the bottom and when you get to the bottom there are flippers and you cross off those to ping it back up to the top and you keep going up and down the pinball table um trying to score max points yes Um, and so can i say the catch because i think it's the only part of this game i remember really well go for it (laughs) uh as a so as a roll and write uh, puzzle. So let's say people roll the dice and the dice are a four and a five. Um, the the main catch in uh, Super Skill Pinball 4K, which is a title I'm now coming around on, um, <laughs> is that most of the elements on your table can only be hit once. Is that still true on some of the harder boards? Uh, yes. I mean, and then they reset eventually. But yeah. 
Um, that's true of your uh, sort of actual flippers at the bottom as well. So while to begin with, when you start the game, you'll be able to knock your pinball back to the top of the sheet um, with almost any number. If you use a six to knock it back to the top of the sheet, you then can't use a six again. So as your options narrow, your the, the main crunch point for me in the game that I remember playing was that uh, as you knock out the numbers of the flippers, you are faced with this question of like, okay, will I drop the ball down voluntarily now to knock it back up while I can? Or am I going to keep it in the air and know that if I don't roll a one or a two later, I've lost this ball? Yeah, it's like a tiny push your luck thing that's especially um, exacerbated by the fact that um, down by the flippers, you can actually get the ball in the gutters, which scores you points for every one you previously filled in on the flippers. So say you, wow, I've just realized this sounds, if someone's just, if you're just tuning in now, this is the most (laughs) alienating. Here's the thing. I said this in my video when I was playing the demo of this, but... I really, really like the idea of pinball. I like how the boards are designed. I like how the score multipliers are just absolute like crazy nonsense. But I could never get good at pinball unless it was somehow turn-based. And now it is. Yes, absolutely. And it, it weirdly, you know, this is that classic. It's like the reviewer byline, but it does feel like you're playing pinball. Like yes. every time you, the flippers especially, every time you bounce that ball up to the top again, it's like, right, and you watch it trickle down and hit things on the way. And you can imagine it whizzing and hitting and things. And it does make you feel profoundly sad, but it's also good fun um (laughs) but it's it's it might actually be this is the i'm without bearing the lead it might be my new favorite rolling right um wow i love it i think it's so good and it also might be my new favorite dedicated uh without i mean i've not played many dedicated solo games but because it has a solo mode well the game can just be played solo as easily as it can be played multiplayer and Mm without bringing RPGs, solo RPGs into the mix, I think it is probably my favorite solo game as well. It's so satisfying to just sit and play a little bit of Super Skill Pinball 4K. It's great. Wow, I'm thrilled because the only problem I had with the demo, which I should stress, it's still available for free. If you search for WizKids free Super Skill Pinball download, you'll be able to print off the beginner board. Um, my only question was, you know, how much more rich and complicated and nuanced as it gets on later boards. But the fact that you've played, what is it, the Saturday Night Fever board? In fact, what are the what are the different tables that come in the box? <laughs> so the first one is Carnival. Creepy, 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 clowns. creepy clown. Carnival, yes. really? Yeah, that's what it's called. Um, okay. The next one is called, oh, I think it's called like Cyber Run. I'm going to find out right now. Hold on. <laughs> and then we'll and we'll we'll. we'll expertly edit this so that i it's seamless the second one is called cyber hack uh into it <laughs> the next one is dragon slayer and the final one is dance fever baby uh oh so da- the one you were playing on is the most complicated no, no, no i haven't uh, i haven't played dance fever yet i just took a picture of it because it is the silliest of all the boards i think that um when they were designing it there must have been a point where they thought hey are we gonna really make players say score the boogie bonus reset to hokey pokey and <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> i can't wait until i get to that moment that is gonna be like peak board games like oh yes I've scored the boogie bonus. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh god! I mean, yeah, you're bringing it all back now. I, I, it does definitely capture that moment in real pinball where, you know, where you have to hit the ball like I don't know, say up a certain ramp three times, mm. or you need to hit every letter of like D I S C O, and it's that <laughs> thing where you've gone up, gone up the ramp twice, or you've spelt like D I C O. So there's only one thing left to do, and then you unlock like multi ball or yeah. some crazy score multiplier. And in real pinball and in super skill pinball, it's sometimes you just keeping the ball in the air going, come on, come on, come <laughs> <Yeah>. on, <laughs> as you can't quite get it to go where you want it. I love those rules for nudging as well, like nudging the table. Oh, yeah. Which is, so you, you should explain the nudging yeah, rules. Yeah, you can modify a dice to a different number. So say you need a six and you've rolled a five, you can go, eh, I'll nudge that up. And you can nudge from anything to anything. You can nudge from a one to a six if you wanted. But you write in a box the number, the difference between the numbers that you've nudged to. And then if you roll... Oh, I, you'll be able to work. If uh, you have to roll a dice, and if the difference is bigger than the difference, yes. you yeah, allotted yourself. Yeah, maybe. something, something. Like, basically, it's a, it's another push a luck thing. Because if you, if you roll, if the difference is less, isn't it? Then, the, the, if the difference that you put is the, less than the difference between the two dice you rolled, wow, perfectly yes. explained, Tom. Then your ball just gets gutted <laughs> instantly, and you've only got three of them for the whole game as well. Yes, because sim- uh, representing the way that in real pinball, if you shake the table too much, it will 
lock and you won't be able to interact with the paddles anymore which and is wonderful the ball falls off the table it's a lovely yeah. little touch because it means you get a little bit of control and there's also these skill shots you can unlock as well which will mean that you can also switch to any number without the risk um it's just fantastic i was absolutely loving my time with it because you're right that it has that feeling of building up a combo and hitting those mega points and getting that sort of like ding 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 moment when you manage to get everything mm. perfectly and that's compounded with i realized so on the score sheet uh, it gives you stars from one to a hundred on my first game i'm in the on the scoreboard at the back of the manual it's got a lovely cute little mm. scoreboard where you can write your high scores um jeff has got a hundred points but the score sheet <laughs> goes up to like 600 and I realized the only way that you'll do that is by using multi-ball, which again, another lovely thing that you can do in the game is if you hit a multi-ball bonus, you put a second ball on and now you're using both dice rolls and you've got to keep both of them bouncing around in the air and it's maximum risk, but all the points you score are doubled. And then you combine that with like, you know, the test your strength thing that gets you, you know, 20 points if you hit the top and you're like, that's 60, you know, 40 points. Ah, and it becomes this, <laughs> you know, crazy point bonanza. It's just fantastic. Um, yeah, there's there's only one obvious problem that I noticed with it as I was going through it, which is like in real pinball, you know, you can keep the balls in the air for longer or shorter, which means it's a peculiar thing that if you don't play it as a solo game, and I think you and I have only played it solo mm. so far, there's nothing to stop a player from, you know, doing quite well, getting a bunch of points, but then when they lose their balls, they're literally out of the game. Yeah. So I would imagine it'd be a peculiar thing to play with like three people if two people go out and then one person <laughs> is just playing pinball alone in the pub for... Well, I don't know. I mean, minute, I did. Minute after minute. I did play it with with two. Um, I actually played it with my mum, who saw me sitting playing it alone and was like, "Oh, let's give that a go." And <laughs> what was wonderful about actually, like, I I would say that I don't know whether it's an intentional part of the design, but when you have um, two people playing it at the same time, there's an aspect of you know, with real pinball, when someone is just getting like an amazing run, they're scoring points and they're keeping it in the air. You have that same thing where it feels like people are gathering around the table and watching you score really? more points. And it doesn't always say it's welcome as well because you're all filling in the same number of boxes. You're all using one dice roll to fill one box mostly. Um, you're kind of paced around the same kind of place. You, there's never You're never going to be sitting there for like an hour. It might be like a 10 minutes tops or whatever when you watch someone kind of eke the last points out of what they've got left so it was nice kind of sitting there and <laughs> i just i actually gutted it really early and i just sat there and watched my mum who has literally like never engaged with a board game in her life slowly ping a pinball around for a good five minutes and <laughs> realizing that she was getting all the rules wrong the whole time <laughs> which was great <laughs> which was great but I also, I played, um, so you were also questioning whether there was more longevity in the game past the carnival one. And I played the second table, the cyber hack uh, table, <laughs> which was uh, really cool. Um, but that one, <laughs> that one adds, um, like most of the board is quite similar to the carnival one, but it adds a mini game where you can start a run. And most of the table is gaining like supplies to then go on your run and like try and get as many boxes to score the mega points there as well. And it's just like, there's obviously a strategy to each table and working that out and unpicking it and then trying to go for it with the right amount of luck is just super satisfying. That sounds great. Uh, I was a while back, I put out a video of like our top five favorite new card games. Uh, I, I we're certainly getting to the point where we're not too far off doing a top five new Roland rights as well. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, if you like it this much, maybe it's a dedicated video review. Quite possibly. I can't wait to delve into the next two. The yeah, the Dragon Slayer board, which adds spells, and the Dance Fever Sp one, which is like two separate pinball tables. So, yeah, it's great. It's great. Tom. Hello. Tom. I that that didn't have the sort of natural back and forth flow I was expecting, but we'll, we'll stick with it. Uh, I have been playing with Matt uh, a little, a massive Uwe Rosenberg game called Fields of Arlo. Mm -hmm. So um, a while back on the site for Chess Month, I reviewed a little two-player Euro game called Targi, but I ended it by saying, you know, this isn't the only two-player Euro game we've reviewed. There's a dedicated two-player Euro game made by the king of these things, Uwe Rosenberg, Fields of Arlo. And like all Rosenberg games, it's about... Uh, sort of pastoral small holdings and getting cows, getting sheds, Ooh. getting getting veggies, getting flax, and then <laughs> getting points at the end of the day. Um, but the thing was that I hadn't actually played Fields of Arla, and a lot of people say it's um, one of Uwe Rosenberg's best games. And so after I did the Targi review and I went back and linked to our old uh, written review of Fields of Arla, I was like, I want to try this. So I summoned one Matt Lees and we played it. And 
Okay, so before I get into my negativity, I want to give you a bit of context that a lot of people do say this is like one of the best Uwe Rosenberg games of all. Right. Um, Uwe Rosenberg, who you might know for most famous for Agricola, perhaps, and then Caverna, which everybody loves, and then Feast for Odin recently that everyone loves. And then there's some, and then also he, uh, he has some smaller games like Patchwork, which um, people really, really enjoy. But Fields of Violet, riding high, like position 50 or so on the Board Game Geek Top 100. My goodness. I went. I, I know. I went in expecting big things. So did Matt. And Ooh. I will... S- well, <laughs> I think it's showing its age a little bit. Ah. So um, I'll just check. So this game came out in 2014. I will now uh, pitch it to you. So it is, interestingly, the most autobiographical of Uwe Rosenberg's games. So usually um, he will pick a theme, you know, whether it's like dwarves or Vikings, something with a little little color, little edge. Fields of Valor is based on one peculiarly specific town, village even, in the north of Germany where uh, Uwe's dad married his mum. That's sweet. It is, but it immediately creates sort of some funny... Uh, sort of silliness in the game where you you set someone down to play fields of valor and as you teach them you're like right you're going to be uh the owners of land in the place in germany that's famous for the best flax (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know how much you know about flax but i know a lot more since playing fields of valor um but so you're going to be clearing land which is uh sort of like bogs full of peat and then you can cut the peat and sell the peat you're going to be building fences and getting um sheep and cows you can plant fields for grain um you can get a lot of like wool from your sheep and turn it into clothing it's the fields of violet is a game where you can do so much right. it's it's probably like it's certainly on the journey of uve rosenberg games you can see how his games get bigger and bigger and bigger and give players more and more and more options and for the beginning and the middle of fields of Valor, it was it really lived up to its kind of um, reputation for myself and for Matt. You know, you you sit down with this huge worker placement board, um, you know, with all kinds of different things you can go and do. And you very quickly realize that there's so many exciting things waiting for you to achieve. For example, as soon as you start getting um, livestock, like horses and cows and stuff, that livestock will start breeding and start sort of like, <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, Tom, but turns out animals will exponentially produce more animals. No if way. You, uh, I know. If you leave them alone. But the, if you leave them in a sh- shed, which, you know, like, you know what, I'm not going to get into specifics. <laughs> um, but also, there's a, the as you're wanting to build stuff and build things like inns and churches and more sheds, uh, you want to get forests because forests are where you produce lumber. You want flax because then you can turn that into cloth and clothes. But you don't actually have enough room or time. So one of the other things you need to do is find time somewhere in the day to extend these dikes to reclaim more of the land from the sea. And then that frees up more uh, places for you to build. Um, the fact that it is two player only, I was expecting it to have a sort of drastic head to head element. Mm. Um, it's not true. Fields of Valor is a dedicated two player Euro game because Uwe Rosenberg just put so many components in the box <laughs> that it would be unfeasible to uh, to open it up for more players. And in fact, the first Fields of Valor expansion adds components for a third player. So it doesn't do what Targi did and uh, sort of offer me a Eurogame that was interesting for having two players. It's just a Eurogame that happens to sure. uh, sort of like see two players. I thought you were going to say that it's specifically for two players because it was so that Uwe Rosenberg's mum and dad could play it. And then <laughs> and then that all fell apart when you said, and then they added a third player expansion. I was like, whoa. <laughs> wow. Mr. Well, Mrs. I Rosenberg. Think, I don't want to get you too excited, Tom, but the, you have four worker placement pieces in Fields of Valor, and one of them is Uwe Rosenberg's face, because <laughs> I've seen it in some manuals, which means I think two of the other ones might be his mum and his dad. That is incredibly Except, sweet. It is, but both players do have the same tokens, so it's like you're both <laughs> kind of piloting two alternate timeline versions of Uwe Rosenberg's family right. in like the turn of the 19th century. Um, but... Well, Fields of Valley, you know, it's not a particularly new or relevant game, um, but I did want to add an observation that Matt and I both had, which um, was really surprising considering how good everyone had said this game was, um, which is that we both absolutely hated Fields of Valley's late game. Right. Um, 
And the reason why that is, is that this is a sort of what's called a point salad Euro game where you get points for doing everything. You'll get points for extending your dikes. You'll get points for shipping clothing to the towns around you. You get points for not just using your resources to build buildings, but you get points for having those resources. The easiest way to summarize this is that at the end of the game, one of the most exciting buildings you can build, which just gets you a ton of points, is a castle. Or like, you know, you can build an incredibly luxurious tourism industry. <laughs> the reason Matt and I did not like Fields of Isla is because everything gets you points. The final third of the game was us doing all of these calculations of, well, I could build a castle and that would give me 15 points. But the lumber and stone used in building the castle is worth points by itself. Right. So okay. like... You know, it's I could build a shed to put these cows into, but the resources that I could use to build a shed, I could also build, a, you know, a, a wagon. And I could take that wagon to a particular point in Germany. Matt really wanted to raise the point that because he was really focused, he was able to visit every single town around Arla and deliver and sell goods to all of them. Mm. But he didn't actually end up doing that because <laughs> there was no incentive to, like, actually max out this particular objective versus just do some other thing that got, like got you one point for doing something else so yeah it was it was a peculiarly obvious flaw with the with the point salad structure where suddenly we had to do arithmetic of comparing every possible thing we could do with every other thing does this sort of am i explaining this okay does this make sense yeah no that makes a whole lot of sense i mean i think that there's a level of like joy in some euros where at the end you can kind of think about like oh and trying trying to squeeze the maximum number of points out of your resources but what you're saying is that there's just so many options that it gets to a point where calculating the breadth of things you can do just becomes kind of exhausting towards the end. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I see why, I see the value in saying, you know, oh, you didn't get to use these resources? That's okay, they're worth points as well. Oh, mm. you extended the dikes so that you could build on your entire player boards, but you didn't actually end up using that territory? That's fine, we'll give you points for that as well. It creates this warm, feel-good atmosphere because even if you don't quite manage to turn all of your sort of like stage one resources into stage two resources at the end of the game, you're still going to get points. The downside of that is every possible action you can take in this game that is defined by having a million things you can do all need to be weighed up against each other you know just for a few extra points here and there so i guess it, it turns from kind of like fuzzy bumper sort of territory where it's kind of quite sweet and nice and then that kind of subverts itself and becomes kind of heavy and mathematical towards the end by the sound yes of exactly exactly it's like a feast for odin remains one of my favorite rosenberg games because it says you know what do you want to do do you want to go raiding and or do you want to go whaling do you want to you know just build a bunch of sheds and fill them with peas um, my favorite thing to do in Feast for Odin. Um, but all of these things ultimately just sort of get you polymino pieces that you then place on your board. And so once you've committed to a strategy, you're kind of committed. Whereas Fields of Valley encouraging you to do a little bit of everything, yeah, it suddenly turns into maths at the end as opposed to... I suppose what I really like in Eurogames, because you're often tired at the end of playing a Eurogame for an hour or two hours as well. I quite like Eurogames to sort of be, become, be wide in the, and full of possibilities in the beginning and the middle. But then at the end, I quite like them to taper to a point where by my last turn, a Euro game called Gugong is really good at this, um, where your final turn in the game when you're tired and you kind of maybe just want the game to end, um, that's when I want the least decisions. That's when I right. want to be like, oh, well, all, the game I've been playing for an hour means that now I've screwed up or I haven't, but it means that I can only do one of these two things. The mm. idea of a, a Euro game being at its hardest two hours in is not what i want i suppose is the way i put it so so there you, there you have it did i bet i got you really excited to play fields of arlo yeah i'm i'm absolutely stoked to sit down and play a game that uh widens to a point of horror that like... <laughs> <laughs> i'm just surprised it's ranked as high on bgg uh mm. as it is but hey hey in terms of this being a controversial podcast should we move on to the next game where you and i might have to have a fight yeah, I, I think I've, I mean, I've prepared myself. I've actually got boxing gloves on right now for this. Well, that would explain uh, why moment. you're so hot that you had to take off your clothes again. Hey, <laughs> yeah, it actually, it wasn't too warm. I just needed to get in the zone um, to have a punch <laughs> up over Undaunted North Africa. Okay. Um, designed by Trevor Benjamin and David Thompson and published by Osprey Games. I think, I, I don't know what to think really this fight is immediately turned into two strong-willed people punching up to me kind of just being like i don't help <laughs> well i don't feel very confident either so because i did shut up to down's original review of world war ii deck building card game undaunted i had an absolutely amazing time of it i played it with mm -hmm. ava we both had a good time 
I haven't played the sequel, Undaunted North Africa. I sent it to you, and now you're telling me it's not as good, which yeah. flies in the face of what everyone else on the internet is saying. Because <laughs> I, I bought uh, Undaunted Normandy off the back of that review and had an absolutely wonderful time with it. I thought it was fantastic, and I was really excited to sit down and play North Africa. And I think it isn't quite as good. And I feel like I'm looking at, yeah, everyone saying that it's great, and I don't know whether I'm like, there's just something... Something doesn't add up, but I'll talk about it nonetheless. It is a fascinating game regardless. So Undaunted North Africa is the same setup as Undaunted Normandy, where you have each of you are playing a side in a sort of individual battle. Um, and you it's a deck builder where you have a kind of market of soldiers that you can add into your deck. And each one of those soldiers can be used to move troops around on a board and do combats and capture points. The big difference with Undaunted North Africa is that it's way more asymmetrical than Normandy. So within that deck, you have normally you'd have uh, each side would have a scout card, and each scout is you know say has the same slew of actions available uh, regardless of what team it's on, um, and is worth the same like initiative cost or whatever. But in North Africa, same cards on different teams have different values. So like the the uh, Italian scout might have an initiative of five and a combat of one and the um lrdg i don't know if i've got that acronym right uh for the uh british player might have a completely different set of numbers associated with it and along with that you have a handful of new actions and some are unique to specific sides so i know that the british sniper has the stalk action which means he can go into unscouted territory and the italians have a plane that can surveil and like view the territory from above and that sort of thing hmm. and as well as that the last uh, well one of the last big additions is that cards now are just one dude rather than a full squad um, in Undaunted Normandy, you have like a deck of scouts, and all those scouts would be different people in the same squad. In this, your sniper is just one person, and every card is him going, ow, that bullet, it really hurt. <laughs> Which immediately threw me. I was very surprised they gave that up because, you know, you've played Normandy. I made the point of saying in the review that moment where just you lose a card from your deck, but you know that thematically someone is dead. Right. Like, it's it really is such a perfect combination of theme and mechanics because it doesn't require any extra thought from you. It just fits perfectly and it's very moving. Mm. And it does kind of fit that it's one dude rather than a squad. They do back that up in a different and also interesting way because now, previously when you would recruit cards into your deck from a sort of big... Uh, the big market pile in front of you you'd add a new soldier into your squad and then that soldier would then be promptly like sniped out by whoever um now if you ever run out of cards you can't recruit that soldier back onto the board a little bit later just by putting the cards from the market into your deck so say you had two engineers in your deck and you didn't recruit any more and then those two engineer cards got pinged from your deck that's gone forever you, you right. don't get the chance to recruit them again so it does continue on that thing of once a soldier is gone they are gone thoroughly <laughs> absolutely yeah. um, which is lovely so these new and then the other big new mechanic is uh vehicles which i think i'll talk about a little bit later and uh you now have a system of destroying instead of the objectives that you have to control uh the italians have to control objectives but the british have to destroy them and okay generally speaking it me leads to a kind of much speedier game it's over much quicker and i think that that might be where my problem is hmm. um so i don't know if i'm just so with the destroying buildings and objective holding i think that's kind of the little central pin that's holding the game together but also is why i might not like it um if the british destroy a building they get the point they take the building off the board and put it in front of them and it's worth a point but obviously that means that the italians have fewer buildings to hold right okay the, prob the problem is like even if the italians control a building the british can still jump on that territory and blow it up so you can literally get to a the british have uh, a unique advantage that their scoring a point can also deny the italians a point in the same go Okay. For the Italians to win, they need to control three buildings all at once. The British just need to destroy them one at a time, which automatically felt a little bit weird. And I was thinking, well, maybe do the Italians have a bunch of like cool stuff to make up for it? Um, maybe I've just played some really lucky games, but I've played five scenarios and the Italians have lost every single one with different people playing them. The British have universally won everything, even though the Italians have, you know, the recon airplane and the tank and all this improved firepower. It's strange they just lose every time 
Um, I mean, that's it's it's certainly possible. It also my spider sense is now saying I, I feel like the designer might show up in the comments of this podcast and be like, "Here's what I think might be happening," mm. but. I, the thing that makes me nervous as a huge fan of Undaunted Normandy, um, weirdly, is that asymmetry you're describing? As soon as you mm. started talking about that, I got a little nervous as well. Because, I mean, if I had to summarize why Undaunted Normandy is so good, it's because it's a very tight two-player game where whenever one person does something, it has an immediate emotional response from the other player. You know, if you recruit yeah. someone, I go, oh, no. If you kill one of my troops, I go, oh, no. Mm. Um, but we got quite close to this when we talked about what is asymmetry for when we were talking about Assault on Pizza Parlor 5 a few podcasts mm-hmm. ago. But uh, if the, one of the things asymmetry doesn't allow is it means if I kill an Italian unit which has no parallel on the British side, I don't know how to feel about that. You know, if if it, it, it creates a wall between the two players which mean that you don't understand each other's games as well. It's interesting because in the first few scenarios, you have the British have an engineer that can demolish buildings and the Italians have a rifleman that control buildings. And they're the only units that have those abilities on their respective sides. And it creates a point where if the British manage to, you know, kill the Italians engineer or, you know, vice versa, then that's their game over. They've no longer got the ability to destroy the objectives and it's a foregone conclusion. The only other way that you can win is by just wiping out the rest. So it has that immediate, like... um, you know which sides are important. I don't think the asymmetry is a problem in that way. Because okay, you know on. which units are, are especially valuable to the other team. Um, but I think the problem is is that the asymmetry often... Maybe we just haven't grokked like, the strategy for each side yet. Um, or maybe, again, maybe they're just really lucky games. But I've found that the games, because of those very quick win conditions for the British, where they just blow up three buildings as quick as they possibly can and end the scenario there and then, um, means that... The game ends quicker, and then you want to set up the next scenario, but the setup for Undaunted is quite involved. Mm-hmm. Um, you're sorting through this big stack of tiles, you're putting the right pieces and sorting out your deck and all that kind of stuff. And the games kind of finish quite quickly with not much tension. I know that a lot of people have been saying that they like this game because it's more immediate and because firefights in Undaunted Normandy would um, last a lot longer and be you'd be less engaged by the end of them. But I think that those firefights, because they went on for longer, the tension would just ratchet up as you went. In this, sometimes you can just ping a unit off the board in a couple of really quick shots. Um, you know, the British can just jump into a space and detonate it instantly. Uh, the demolitions roll, they roll to do buildings. You'll roll like three dice, maybe four, and you need a six. And I've never seen one of the rolls fail. They've always wow. destroyed the building straight away because it's just it, the probabilities there. And again, maybe that's just pure luck. Um, but so, so playing efficiently as the British involves just hitting things really, really quick. Then as the Italians, you're encouraged to like take as much territory as possible. But then you're probably going to put yourself out in the open and you get gunned down. So it seems stacked one way um but i i think that these you know the designers have proved to be like incredibly on it with undaunted normandy so that's why i'm feeling so weird about not liking this because i don't know if there's something fundamentally that i'm doing wrong with the game or that i'm approaching it differently because i want to like it so much (laughs) well what about the other big addition to undaunted that's in north africa then Uh, how do the vehicles feel the vehicles feel again i I feel kind of weird and i wouldn't say an unwelcome addition but they're they are something that feels like an expansion, right? Like ah. something that they put in because expansion was something that people were clamoring for, not necessarily because they add a lot of richness to the game's core. Um, vehicles, basically, you can hop squad members in and then they gain a new action based on where they are in the vehicle. So if you put someone in the driver's seat, they can now drive the truck. If you put someone in the gunner's seat, they can gun off the top. Um, which is, you know, a lovely thematic thing. You're like, oh, and you can picture it in your head. You know, my rifleman gets in the car and then he drives it to spaces or whatever. And you have a tank. The Italians have this tank that is an absolute monster because you can fully equip it with a a specific tank crew. And then you'll be using, that can move around the board to no end and it's got amazing armor (laughs) and guns and stuff. And it's a real presence on the board. But ultimately the implementation feels kind of strange because when you, Undaunted is a very... Undaunted Normandy, at least, is a very easy-to-pass game visually. You look at the board, and you can immediately see the board state based on where the tokens are and what's been scouted. It's quite clean, and it's quite simple. But the vehicles, because the vehicle tokens themselves stay on the board, but the people in them are off the board on little vehicle cards, you find you're sort of bobbing your head back and forth between the two to make sure you are using the right thing. And also, 
the vehicles aren't very visually distinct from one another so there's a scenario that we did where the objective was to escape for the brits and you're managing these three different vehicles and trying to make sure that they all go in the same direction and that they've got the right people in them and it's a little bit of extra faff that i don't know if the game ultimately really needed i don't know if it adds anything that accentuates the highs of the original so ultimately i feel like I want to play a few more scenarios of North Africa and kind of see if the Italians get more of a win rate and to see if I'm, I'm ultimately doing something maybe a little bit wrong, maybe the strategy is not quite there because obviously they're pushing, you know, the Italians to be more of a hold ground and the British to be more sort of like, you know, jump in and detonate something. But so far, I finished every game of North Africa wanting to play Normandy and that might say quite a lot. <laughs> Goodness gracious. You haven't dampened my excitement to try it, but okay, no, that no, you have a little bit actually. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a tiny den. And I, I don't want to like, I hope that I, I want to be wrong, right? Like obviously the podcast gives us like a space where we can sort of talk about stuff that isn't as like official as a review perhaps. And Mm -hmm. I want to love this game. I don't know whether that's conflicting my opinions. I don't know whether people generally want to love this game and that's why it's getting rave reviews and is accentuated. But ultimately, I found that there's a lot of... It's kind of death by a thousand cuts and the cuts are sort of new introductions into the formula that I just don't know if they're like ultimately that helpful. Hey, if you went into this wanting to like it and despite that, you know, still came away with reservations, I think... You know, you don't need to feel bad about saying that. And besides, it's the internet. Other opinions are available. That's about going to wrap it up for the podcast this week. But we're going to end, as we always do, by pointing you towards some of the videos we have slaved away on on our YouTube channel. And Matt, recently, uh, continuing to celebrate Chess Month, week three, reviewed Ken, which I did not realise is from the designer of Inish. Gave it an absolutely glowing review. Tom, uh, you have, of course, played Ken, talked about it a bit on the podcast. How are you feeling about it today? Pretty good. Fantastic. And then just this week, I published something that I have been working very hard on, which was my review, even calling it a review sounds quite seedy, <laughs> but my, my review of Go, the 4,000-year-old game that you might know uh, from nerds saying, oh, chess is intelligent, but it's no Go. Mm. Uh so I was I went into Go not knowing how I would feel about it. Go is an enormously deep, certainly, I, I, Tom, I think I could quite happily call it the deepest board game I've ever played. My goodness, that's I know quite something. It took me a full day of googling and playing Silver Star Go on my Nintendo Switch to feel like I understood the rules. <laughs> it took me a week to feel like I was a beginner, like a week of games to feel like I was a beginner. And on the review, there was a comment from some Go player being like, "Yeah, it took me a year to feel like I was a beginner," <laughs> um, which I think was a completely fair dig. Um, so yeah, this is a two-player abstract game in which. Two players try to take control of sections of the board by taking turns to place black or white stones on the board uh, with two twists. First off, the board is massive. There's more than 300 <laughs> spaces on a Go board and you can play anywhere, which is why it took AIs so long to solve it in the way they did with chess because the way that, like, it's, it's, it's relatively easy for a computer to math out the best possible chess move because if there's, like, 10 moves it could take, then planning three moves into the future is, like, 10 times 10 times 10. But with Go, because there's more than 300 rules, an AI will struggle to plan the future because it's 300 times 300 times 300. Right. Uh, which requires masses of more computational power. Um, the other reason Go is hard is because in addition to trying to carve up territory, exactly like Through the Desert, if you've played that, uh, by Rainer Knizia, um, you can also capture stones. So the easiest way to summarize why Go is a hellscape to try and play well is because... <laughs> You and your opponent will take turns essentially trying to create walls and curves to carve off sections of the board going, this is my territory. However, if a stone is ever completely surrounded by the other person's stones in a sort of more tight basis, um, that stone is removed. So you can draw a nice big fence, but if, that, if part of that fence gets surrounded by your opponent, your fence is now gone and your plans are in disarray and you're an idiot. And playing Go is sort of trying to squeeze into your head, playing two games at the same time on a board that is too big. It's the easiest way i think i could summarize it sounds and like pure horror it you know here's the thing remember when we played calico on the podcast a while back and oh, we were yes. like this game absolutely destroyed me hmm. a weird thing about go is like it's hard but the thing with other bo with board games that we play like frequently a, like something like calico 
or you know a, a particularly difficult turn in something like I don't know um, well Fields of Valor like you really feel like you're calculating and you're sweating and you don't know and you get analysis paralysis Go is despite it being difficult it's not a game where I got analysis paralysis because Interesting. I, I thought I knew a good move and that's <laughs> okay, that's okay. one of the reasons that Go is actually weirdly fun and addictive to learn and explore is because in lots of board games you're like oh I don't know what to do I can't figure it out in Go you'll go I know exactly what to do but you'll be wrong but that's fine because you'll keep playing and you and your opponent will take moves quite quickly. And then after 20 minutes, you'll realize that you are like functionally an idiot. Um, that's great. But, that's a good feeling that you get from a game. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, Go isn't for everybody, but I will say it was interesting to play the hardest game of all time and realize that in some ways, the board games we recommend are harder. Um, right. Things are just harder, easy in different ways. Uh, anyway, uh, if I, I'm, I'm quite proud of that video. If you would like to watch it on our YouTube channel, you can just search for Shut Up and Sit Down review go or something like that and yeah that that's sort of probably overkill going to our youtube channel and then using the search function and typing <laughs> our title into the search function on our youtube channel but you get the idea so that'll about round it up for the podcast tom what are you doing for the rest of the day? Oh, you're on a stream today, aren't you? I'm on a stream today, which will have been in the past. We don't know what it, that stream is going to be. It, it's going to be exciting, though, regardless of what it was. What are you doing <laughs> for the rest of the day? Oh, turn it back on me. That's that's you've uh, you've undone me there. For the rest of the day, I am seeing my sister, and she is bringing her to. Uh, I have one of my sisters has two kids who are just like absolute like picture postcard kids, and I'm really looking forward to hanging out with them. <laughs> Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually after this podcast. I need to figure out what board game to put in front of them because they My are I think, four and six, which is not the work never ends. Easy, the work. We'll sit in front of Go. Ends. I think that sounds like a good. You've solved that. it, Tom. Thank you very much, and thank you for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. We don't often say this, but hey, if you felt like giving us a little review on the podcast software you're using. That still goes a long way. I know it's not 2015 anymore. No one's telling you to review their podcast, <laughs> but we're bringing it back because it's still a relevant and useful thing to do. If you have not yet re uh, reviewed the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, we really do appreciate it. So thank you very much. Tom, thank you. Thank you, Quinns. Quin Quinns, thank you. I was thank, you I was Quinns. I was thank you, Tom. Thanks, thank Tom. you. Quinns. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.